talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome to More Like the Worst Wing our show where we take a look at, episode by episode, Aaron Sorkin's seminal work, The West Wing, from a bit of a 2020 leftist socialist perspective. I am Dave. And I am Stu. And we are here to discuss the episode entitled Arctic Radar, uh, which is a weird episode title because it just kind of refers to a one-off sentence said by uh, Christian Slater's new character, Jack Reese, who we're getting sort of an extended introduction to. In this episode, as well as the main function of this episode, seems to be to give us a new introduction, or at least to show the narrative slide of getting Will Bailey into the White House to replace Sam Seaborn. Well, and now that I actually I think about it, because we were talking about this before we started recording, um, the opening scene here is where they go in and Bartlett says, like, hey, great job, cabinet. You made number go up. Yes. Yeah. Like, so, better. yeah, our cold, our cold open. <laughs> Is a meeting with the cap, the final meeting with the cabinet for the first term, uh, and yeah, Bartlett rattles off all these statistics about how cabinet made number go up. Uh, you know, they created X million jobs and blah blah blah, and um, you know, they did all these good things, which conveniently happened off screen. Uh, and yes. the show never actually <laughs> tackled with the the nit and gritty of how those these things were accomplished. Well, and so my my point here is that. The the broader purpose of this episode, as I can kind of suss it out when I was thinking about this, is basically they're turning over the administration's leaf. Transition. Like they are, this is the transition of the mm-hmm. regime, if yes. you will. And so we have Jack Reese as a new character, and also Josh Molina comes in playing Will Bailey as a new character. So, okay, I get it now. There's a little yes. bit of parallel. Okay, it. there's some theme to it, at yeah. least. That's why this episode, it wasn't bad or poor or anything like that but it, neither was it too good or exciting it, it's just sort of middling but at least i think that thematic connection helped everything gel a little bit better for on the watching experience and kept it from being like one of the real stinkers that we were reviewing like three or four weeks ago <laughs> yeah well and you get um the just it's the whole cabinet thing is like your second note was just like barlett blows in there spends what 45 seconds talking right. to his entire cabinet staff right and then and then leaves first, and then leaves and is like hey i need y'all to resign it's right like, and they go on a little bit about the decorum ritual of like oh uh, they all they all resign so that he doesn't ha- you know he gets to decide whether to hire them again as opposed to firing them and it's like uh, oh uh, it's all just like this jerk off ritual shit for libs that they like oh look how look how peacefully we transition power and and whatnot or and, something like that uh, like this is you know we serve at the pleasure Oh, and that, that phrasing of, gets brought up a couple of times in this episode. Yeah. Leo says it at one point. It just, it's also very strange. And this, this is kind of, oh, I'm Fitz Wallace says it at one point too. Yeah. I'm reaching a little bit here because he ends the credential run of the administration by saying that, um, heretical bad number also went down. Because they eliminated, like, X thousand pages uh, of, of federal gover- regulations. Right. Which, of course, eliminating pages of regulations can only be a good thing. Yes, only good. Because, you know... There's there's no bad. downside for eliminating regulations, as yeah. we're well aware of. And it's, it's, like, I don't know. It just seems somewhat 
incoherent because like, hey you guys are doing a great job managing and manipulating but also great job at doing <laughs> that less yeah i'm making the and just stripping out a bunch of regulations from from the government which i i don't understand why it's sold as unambiguously good but as you said it's just incoherent they just want to rattle off a bunch of good things yeah. and less government regulation is a good thing in our bipartisan world view according to sorkin oh yeah i mean it's that's that's like it's become the accepted standard is that right big government bad right so we'll we'll tackle the will uh, stuff a little bit later. So that's the main focus right now. In the beginning, I want to talk about one of the other subplots. It's kind of not related to this transition period, um, which is the the running subplot they have about Vicky Hilton, an mm. Air Force pilot who was having an affair, and her superior officer told her to stop the affair, and she did not. And so now they're trying her for refusing an order. Uh, refusing a military order. Yeah. Um, to be clear, I think she was having an affair with, and I don't remember if it's an inferior or a superior or yeah, at her fra- rank. It was a fraternization. Yeah, yeah. so she's, she's fraternizing. Right, but that wasn't the big issue because at, at some point Leo says, yeah, fraternization happens all the time. We don't actually care about that. It's not the adultery itself. It's that she was ordered to stop and she didn't and well, thus I'm, disobeyed I'm, the order. I'm just clarifying. It's not that her commander is aware of like her having an affair in her right. personal life that she's like having a Jody right. out there. It's specifically it's within with the another. Regulations. Yeah, so that's why they can order it essentially to yes. be like, "Hey, stop seeing other enlisted soldier who we also control." Yes. Um. So, but it becomes like a big moral, ethical quandary for the episode, and you basically hear other. A bunch of characters just basically ask each other, hey, what do you think about the Vicky Hilton situation? <laughs> and, like, that just happens throughout the episode. Um, but the big conversations are with Josh and Fitz Wallace, where um, they meet in the mural room, and basically Josh is kind of like the audience XP of, like, well, how can this happen? And Fitz explains the military logic behind it. And then Josh is like, I think I have to take this to Leo. And Fitz is like, yep, that's how it should go. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's it's again, just a big like jerking off of the process working or whatnot. And this all ends up with just Bartlett deciding like, well, if we got, you know, me and Leo disagree about it because Leo's taking the military hard line because he's a military man. Of like, yeah, you don't disobey orders, you know, otherwise, who knows, you know, she might be up in that jet and just decide to defect to Russia or something like that. You don't know. (laughs) Um, Whereas Bartlett is like, "Uh, I think, you know, an affair is sort of a different thing. And, you know, a bunch of other characters input their thoughts on it. And Bartlett says, like, we could have five other people in here and have eight different opinions about the situation because it's a big sticky quandary and that's sort of how they wrap it up with just the idea that they're going to get a bunch of people in the oval office to sort of verbally debate this issue and then perhaps do something about it but we what they'll do we never know yeah and how they end up squaring it we also will never know this was a big thing i remember because i um between high school and college i dated a woman who went into the air force she's a, a weapon system Mm -hmm. Uh, officer in the air force now and this was a big deal circa like for whatever reason when you couldn't really get at the politics of the military post 9-11 when it was sort of this uh 
Right. Squishy support consensus. The, support the troops. Yeah. Don't question the troops. This was the issue that started to, I guess, in at least in my experience, kind of come to the fore, is the question of fraternization. And this also dovetails a little bit with the don't ask, don't tell debate that was also mm. uh, rolling at the time because yeah, it's all this, about... Yeah, this one stays nice and hetero in the West Wing, but yeah, I can imagine in real life not every single case was like that. Well, yeah, and, and um, it's all about the the excuse that the military line is that right. it's about force readiness and that you right and following if, orders and if you won't blah, blah. follow an order that could harm a person you're in love with and so what i actually really liked about this is, <laughs> is that first of all <clears throat> the running the the gag of like bringing it up with each male administration character <laughs> and like <laughs> oh my my female significant other has yeah. been giving me the runaround about this vicky yeah. business yeah, yeah. they all complain about like how the women in their lives are off screen yelling at them about the Vicky Hilton issue. Yeah, that's, it's just, there's a lady problem. Well, we got a woman problem. <laughs> These dames won't let me have the end of it, and I'm just trying to smoke my cigar in my study. <laughs> yeah. She can bring me a whiskey and fuck off. Um, <laughs> but like, the uh, it, it's actually... A clever device within the writing. I think it's sure it's subtle enough that it's like, oh yeah, and it you know. it would be, you know, it plays out. It would like work like that in real life too. You know, like it, a hot topic issue like this is going to come up, uh, particularly was, for all these politically connected people. And I think they're <clears throat> to their credit. Also, the writers actually work through the argument and the counter argument because they put it in the president's mouth. Now, yes. whether this is like. Whether this is banking on the trope of him as the non-military squishy guy, like, fine, whatever. But it's literally how I thought through what was going on and how yes. Emma, my wife, yelled at me when we were talking about <laughs> this. Because yes. the the initial superficial read is, sorry, when she signs on that dotted line, like, her life is no longer her own. Right, and if she, she is now a slave order, of the U.S. military, <laughs> Exactly. So... Then, you know, tough titty. But then Bartlett, to his great credit, says, like, no male officer orders Whatever. a subordinate yeah. to to cease that relationship. Like, right. It's, it's ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, he pulls out famous examples of, like, Eisenhower and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, yeah, the, the episode actually does a decent job sort of portraying both sides of the argument and then just ultimately punts on the issue of where they're going to land on. And just goes, well, we'll just have a great debate about it. And I'm pretty sure we get no resolution in in following episodes. Yeah. And also, like, it kind of sucks because it puts Fitz on screen again. Usually I fucking love Fitz, but he's a huge asshole. Yeah. He's he's absolutely on the wrong side. He takes the hard line, uh, just like Leo. Um, uh, One other detail about the subplot before we take a break and move on to other things is that uh, Vicky Hilton herself is given quite the credential check by Josh, uh, when talking to Fitz, he compares her to, like, the Jackie Robinson of the Air Force in <laughs> yes. terms of, like, breaking barriers and is like, first woman to do this, first woman to fly this plane in combat. And all I can think of is more women, fighter, pilots. <laughs> <laughs> more women, more criminals. <laughs> they say the next one's going to be sent by a woman. Really yeah. makes you feel like a part of history, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Like, that's, um, like, look, it's great and all that she's breaking barriers for the Air Force and everything, but, like, let's just chill with what we celebrate. How about? (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, first lady to, to fly over a civilian military target and just bomb the fuck out of it. <laughs> she was the first woman to blow up a Yemeni wedding. Yay! <laughs> yeah, that's all. yeah, so it has a lot of that going on, but I, I guess that's more of a product of its time, as you said, in a post-9-11, where one cannot dare question that the military's purpose is anything but uh, benevolent and, and good for America. Yeah. So, so and it, it again it just gets punted at the end and we 100 percent yeah so let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and discuss other subplots in this episode stand tall for the beast of america lay down like a naked dead body Keep it real for the people working overtime They can't stay living off the government's dime Stand tall for the people of America Stand tall for the man next door We are free in the land of America We ain't going down like this Come now Alright, we're back. So... Josh comes into this episode with a couple of subplots this time around, one of which is, is that we'll get the bad one out of the way first. Oh, I'm curious oh. to which one you think is the bad one. <laughs> well, I think it's that he's acting as a go-between between Donna and Jack Reese. Christian Slater, oh, he's so dreamy. Yeah. Um, well, Donna does ask him, to be fair, in a very sort of middle school way, is like, go ask Christian Slater if he likes me. <laughs> that's exactly it. What the fuck? Aren't, like, aren't you a grown woman? <laughs> who And, like... What the, I don't think the characters, I mean, sure, Donna is a bit of like a, like a mo, like a mook, like, uh, but, but like she, she has strong opinions on things. She's a grown ass woman. Right. Like John she, is the same. She's never Josh been sexually timid before. In, yeah. And just like, why it's the cheapest. Uh, it's like, not like she's sexually aggressive, but neither is she timid. You know, she's, she's perfectly capable of like going over and talking to men that she finds interesting. As we've seen in the past. So yeah, it just comes out of nowhere. Do we really need this sort of weird middle... Like, you described it perfectly. It's like a middle school drama It's literally, go ask if he likes me. Like... And uh, it's like, like go hand him a note. Do you like me? Y slash N circle one. Me? Well, yes, no, maybe. <laughs> never mind that. Obviously, Josh is terrible at this, but perhaps right. we we give him some credit because there's a reason he's terrible at it. It's because it's a it's stupid thing to be gross. doing. Yeah, like it's a stupid, it's, stupid fucking thing to be doing. It's it's a hundred percent like a hostile workplace environment. It's a hostile workplace environment for Jack Reese too, yes. because all of a sudden he's got this guy the who could on fire him. him, right? Who's his superior? Who's who's pressuring him to get together with his subordinate? Like it's all that fucked. Is, <laughs> that is super dirty. And gross, and so they go back and forth, and blah blah blah, and like Josh fucks it up in what's I'm assuming is meant to be like a charming way, right? And I do, yeah. yeah, he ends up like just telling the most embarrassing stories about Donna instead of just trying to find out <laughs> if Jack likes Donna. And then he goes back and tells Donna, he's like, Yeah, I told him all these stories about like when you left your underwear with that lady at the dinner, and she's like, You told him like those stories, I barely know this man. 
and 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 has a proper freak out. But then all's well that ends well, and Josh goes and talks to him again. They this is where the Arctic radar and Arctic Circle line come in that the episode is named for. That again doesn't matter at all in the screen <laughs> of the episode or plot. So whatever episode namers, good job. But yeah, he goes back to Jack Reese and says that hey, Donna likes you. You should probably just ask her out, and she'll say yes. And that that's that's, that's what happens. The end. Yeah. The end. And, and that's the little that subplot. And we don't see their date or anything. So, um, and it's Thanksgiving. So, yeah, like we yeah. don't see anything yeah. come of it. And I okay. think this might be the last episode Jack Reese is in. <laughs> no I think I'll take my I'll take it back if he shows up next episode okay. or, or down the line. But I remember <laughs> Christian Slater just showing up for like two or three episodes, and then yeah, he didn't stick like maybe around, they were gonna make him a more regular supporting character. But then um, I think Nancy McNally ends up taking over for like the military consultant type, type role that Jack Reese yeah. is meant to be. Uh, yeah. And she shows up to be like the military mouthpiece from now on, because uh, they're about to write Fitz out. Not well, they they totally write Fitz out in somewhere season five or six when they kill him, but they they sort of like they, they stop relying on him and rely on Nancy more for this type of military stuff. Hmm. But uh, and then so the other Josh subplot in this episode is another workplace issue, uh, but a milder one this time, which is that one of the lower, lower down people, like a new temper intern, uh, is wearing a Star Trek pin, you know, like the little, uh, it's a comm badge. Yeah. Comm badge. Thank you. God. I feel like Sorry, I'm, I'm a huge my nerd cred nerd. took a hit <laughs> there. <laughs> by, by the way, on, uh, the, the new Virgil Texas podcast this week. Wyatt Snack takes Brie Gray to town Hello. on Star Trek, and it's really fucking funny. Oh. <laughs> so if you guys aren't listening to that, you should. It's very good. Nice. Um, but yeah, so Josh shows up, and um, or Donna tells him about, like, hey, Janice, the new temp or whatever, is wearing a Star Trek pin, and Josh is like, well, tell her to take it off. You can't wear that in the White House. <laughs> You know, dress code, blah, 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 or something like that. Which, sure, all right, fine. You know, it is the White House or whatever. Uh, they would be sticklers about this kind of shit. But then Janice decides to kind of, like, you know, contest it a little. And is, tells Josh, like, you know, the ideals of Star Trek are actually something we want around the White House. You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then... This ends up being a weird referendum on fandom itself, where by by wearing a Star Trek pin, Janice has now set herself as, in Josh's words, one of those people. You know, the kind that go to Star Trek conventions and are the great unwashed nerd masses that uh, we should fear and poke at with pitchforks. Yeah. <laughs> so well, and Go ahead. I uh, just, I mean, the... This stereotype is it is it is somewhat jarring to see this harped on fifteen years down the road. Well, what's funny now because nerds are more mainstream, so this doesn't feel nearly. Well, that's what that's what I was going to yeah, say is that ahead. this actually like, eh, I mean, it's probably a couple years delayed because this is mass mass media fiction writing here. But like twenty years ago, this was the dominant perspective on this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. is, you know, people who like. Who like anything, honestly, like anything, but especially sci-fi and fancy stuff. It's just especially nerdy oh, things. So hey, you're hey you're a big nerd. Get out of here, nerd. You're weird. You know, nerds yeah. get wedgies. 
Uh, and then, so yeah, now in a world where Marvel movies make billions and billions of dollars yeah. <laughs> uh, and stuff like yeah. that, it, it feels different. And now fandoms are more celebrated, even though as people are starting to identify toxic aspects of fandom and whatnot, overall, the, the idea of fandom has morphed a lot from where, where this episode had it yeah. placed. But then, you know, Josh goes on this whole tirade about fandom, about like, so here's the thing. He's like, I like Star Trek too. Here's what I don't like. Let's list our ten favorite episodes. Let's list our ten worst episodes. Let's list blah blah blah. And he goes on this whole like rant about how like fans get too into whatever they're into, mm-hmm. and and says like he's like I'm a fan too. Like I'm a Mets fan and I'm a blah 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 fan. But you take it too far, and and then that's that's bad or something like that. And then but it ends on like the. the it just ends on nothing. It just ends on he's, like fandom is dumb and weird, and you shouldn't get too into anything. But then, and then he's just like, do a good enough job around here, yeah. and we can have maybe a day we'll, we'll we'll create something. a Star Trek holiday or something like that. If you if you type type my papers good enough, yeah, <laughs> sure. And and she seems mollified by by this fact, which okay, but. Um, it really just feels like Sorkin is really oh. like swinging for the fences here and like he's got this whole little treatise written up about here's what's wrong with America today <laughs> like it's, it's like a Dennis Miller style rant almost yeah or like um, and, and frankly let's be real if he is this could also be like a self-hatred thing because guess who's equally if not more irritating than star trek fans it's west wing Fucking fans west wing dip fans shit who have actually had real material impacts on the world who went off to become like a bunch of obama boys and fuck up yeah, the actual no white house whereas the star trek fandom you know has mostly just kept to itself <laughs> yeah and, and hasn't and really fucked have... up the world in any major way as far as i'm aware and i mean in in my experience taught me a lot of my Sort of personal political values <laughs> by yes by virtue of the uh, constant Israel Palestine dynamic that weft its way through DS Nine the series yes so indeed <laughs> uh, so yes we all owe a great debt to Star Trek and this episode decides to shit all over it for no good reason at all other than Sorkin was feeling a little mean today and it it is very okay so we get it that it's like she's a new staffer cool cool like that that aligns with the theme of the episode. And so what do we do with it? It's just like, you're going to invent a controversy with... Like, it's completely out of nowhere. There's absolutely no... It is not tethered to anything. Nope. Uh, This episode, more than any others, has a lot of the subplots just completely unrelated to each other. Where there's, you know, there's sort of a thematic overarching thing that brings them together with the tra- the idea of transitioning between first term and second term and, and bringing in new characters. But then there's also the, like this Star Trek pin thing that just comes out of nowhere, isn't resolved and then dr- is dropped off the face of the episode. Yeah. And you would, I guess to an uncritical viewer, it's an opportunity for Josh to seem magnanimous. I guess but... it's over such a petty thing though. <laughs> Well, I mean, what are, what are West Wing fans? Indeed, <laughs> petty petty tyrants, really. Indeed. Uh, so <laughs> let's take another quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss the Josh and Will Bailey stuff. Uh, sorry, the Toby and Will Bailey stuff. Bitch, bitch, 
So Will Bailey is officially um, kind of, he's brought to the White House. Sam goes to the office out in Orange <laughs> County and is like. <laughs> Will is uh, in the in the utmost, most dangerous spot to be on West Wing. He is going to vacation. He's dressed, <laughs> he's dressed in his vacation clothes. He's got his flight in three hours. He is out the door to the airport. And this is, of course, is when the plot will come wrecking in to uh, make sure that you do not indeed go on vacation and you work. <laughs> you work, damn it. It, it happens so often. Like, it's just so often now. And I'm, I'm sitting here being like, you guys just really have no no sack. Like, None. Just just walk out the... <laughs> it's the fucking drill tweet. Just, just be like, not, I have, Excuse just me, the be share like, zone yeah, tweet. I have a cell phone. Have Toby call me or whatever. Like, but I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, just leave. Just walk out the just door. Leave. Be like, I'll call you. Yeah, I'll call you him from the plane or whatever. We can have an hour long while I'm in the air or something like that. But no, he has to drop everything he's doing and go to D.C. to physically meet with Toby. Well, and it's what is absent Sam's little note, which we only see in the like the ultimate Liter- shot. Literally, it's the closing shot of the episode of this of this thing. Yeah, absent Sam's little note. There's nothing compelling Toby to do anything. Right. Like, Will Bailey just goes to the White House and is like, Right. Well, hey, it, I'm here. Will, yeah, Toby thinks he's there for a staff writing job, like low down on the staff, not to become Sam's replacement. Uh, and and Will's like, no, I have zero interest in doing that. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> well, and here's, here's uh, I can put in the clip because I got this clip before we started recording. <laughs> there's there's a spectacular credential check slash dunk on Toby here. For the record, I was president of Cambridge Union on a Marshall Scholarship and I've written for three congressional races and a governor. I read the Stanford Club speech. I thought it was good. Not as good as other people thought it was. Yeah. Call and response isn't going to work in front of a joint session. You're alliteration happy, guardians of gridlock, protectors of privilege. I needed an avalanche of Advil. And when you use pop culture references, your speech has a shelf life of 12 minutes. You don't mind constructive criticism, do you? No, sir. Anyway, thanks for coming in. I told Sam I can do this by myself. Well... Maybe he thought that your speeches were obscurantist policy tracks lost in a cul-de-sac of their own internal self-righteousness and groaning from the weight of statistics. I'm just speculating. I can't say for sure. That really rules me. <laughs> I love the word obscurantist. Like, it's a great... Yeah, um, I, li- I like their little, word. their little passive writing criticisms um, yeah. back and forth is is pretty good. And it feels like it feels like Sorkin is actually being honest about some of the criticism he might have received. Because yeah. I definitely view this whole thing as like Sorkin really taking the time to talk about, you know, oh, how important writing is and how vital it is. You know, anytime he talks about the process of writing, you could just sort of hear his like writing boner grow. Mm-hmm in the background (laughs) well and i i like i like the concept that were he to get a little bit of self-reflection into his own creation i actually think that's pretty um like that's pretty enlightened yes of i it's fucking aaron sorkin like we're never gonna he's never gonna (laughs) take it to a logical conclusion he's just gonna no (laughs) of course not so 
they they have this whole sort of back and forth during the this first interview thing. Then he tell you know he tells them, okay, write me five hundred words on this essay prompt of a fucking thing where he's like America in the twenty first century and the challenges it will face or or some BS like that. Um, then he looks at it and then they do my favorite trick, which is we don't get to see either speech or whatever, but <laughs> we, we just see Toby reading it going like, mm-hmm, this is good. This is good. And like, oh, well, if Toby says it's good, then it must be really good. <laughs> yeah. And but that, know, that's are... good. Do it that way. Don't do the studio 60 way of showing us your yeah. sketches <laughs> and going, oh, these are the funniest sketches in the world. Don't you want to see one? Oh, that's not funny. <laughs> Yes, it's it's an appeal to authority, but at least it's a subtle use of the drama rather yes. than just smashing it, it into your it face. It works so much better. So, yeah, writers, if you're going to do this, this is the way to do it. Have have your writing expert just look at a speech and go like, mm-hmm, yep, this is good. Well, and uh, so it also kind of, it, it's a little strange because what we are led to understand through several drawn-out scenes of, Toby doing the very dramatic tearing and crumpling of paper and burning, and lighting a, burning it on fire. Of paper. Yes, yes. To even more dramatic effect. Uh, we are led to understand that Toby is in a slump. Right. He's got and he's got the old writer's block, so, or something's not going so hot, and he just isn't writing at the level of performance he's used to. And so the ultimate scene is him in this sort of darkened room which i guess is maybe his office or somewhere else in the it's not his office it's uh, i think they're in one of the conference rooms or meeting rooms or something like that but it's really dramatically lit yeah an incredibly dramatic which is actually like and it's peppered with these extreme close-ups that uh what we were talking about it reminds me of if you guys have watched the battlestar galactica room uh remake like the 2000s version of the show it's Mm -hmm. very very that where it's like you're you're cutting off everything from the eyebrows up and like the lips down yeah. on these these people's faces while you and shoot it slowly it. pan around them like in a yeah. slow Michael Bay style 360 shot, but well, and, but slow enough that it's classy. <laughs> yeah, and and technically, I really like how this is done. Yes, but the, I also it also makes me realize the visual. It's literally a smoky filled room. Like yeah. like Toby's got a big old stogie. And it's literally like the the smoke filled back rooms where power happens. Yep, and he they go back and forth with Will, and he's like giving him shit, sort of. But then Will's like, "You you gotta just pull your pull your head out of your ass here, because mm-hmm. I'm here to help. You could, I, or I could just fucking walk. Like, see ya." And we finally we get to this note that Will was encouraged by Sam to hand to Toby. Toby unfolds and it said. Dear Toby, he's one of us. Love Sam. Right. Um, and and like, he's like, the, oh, this man. Is, this is our big, okay, well, Will Will's in now, you know? Which... Despite, despite any, oh, 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 now I remembered. I had, I had thoughts about this. So at one Go point during this little cigar smoked room bit, uh, he makes, he's like, he, Toby does this weird interrogation of Will where he's like, okay, so despite being, you know, a Western guy i bet you've been schooled in the eastern ways haven't you and will has to go well i'm a capitalist and it's it's like yeah this weird thing where he's like he has to confirm he's a capitalist because toby suspects that like he knows too much about eastern philosophy and thus is like a commie or something i i don't and well like a superficial (laughs) it's like 
Oh, do you mean Marxism? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, because I'm from California? Yeah, like, it, there's a little bit of that, where Will's like, you know, you want me to align your chakras or whatever? Or <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of... So, but it's just weird, it comes out of nowhere, and it's so bizarre that on West Wing, we literally have to character go like, don't worry, I'm a capitalist. <laughs> like, yeah, the explicit. I guess it's just like, you're really laying the mask drop kind of thing. Well, and so, and like... Obviously, they get together and they work on the speech, right? And so the <laughs> the presumption and the fundamentals are that, A, Toby's in a slump, and B, the, there is a presumption that the consequences will be so dire right. if they if do they not release get this a right. below-average speech. Right. And the problem that I always have with it is that we never get the, the counterexample of what we are told are good speeches. So... We never see what happens when they fuck up a speech. Or correct? Know, are we led to assume that they never do? Asse- fuck yeah, up a speech? essentially, yes. They're so they're so good. They always get it together. I mean, to be fair, this is Sorkin, you know, talking about himself. True. So, so of course, he's not going to admit that. Like, well, sometimes you release a shitter of an episode. In his mind, like, no, you always get it together right at the deadline, and the words come, and your hand starts flowing, and the magical perfect speech is always the speech that results. They like they never truly fuck one up. Yeah, and not in any way that has consequences. Uh, so, other than just like small comedic consequences. Well, so by and by that standard, this this really, I guess, dramatic, intense interaction with them falls flat because it's like, okay, but what if what if you don't? And right. we never get the opportunity to investigate that or right. even speculate on it. Yeah, it's a shame because actually I think that could have added stakes. But yeah, you never get to see the consequence of writing failure or even what writing failure looks like to these guys. So and it, it, they also it sort don't, of robs you of that of that stake, those the stakes of it. They don't even bother to go the way that we were just talking about, where they could just say, if I don't get this speech right, we're going to lose 12 points in the polls, and, you know, the big one's going to hit Cascadia, and right. we're all going to die. Or, or, or hell, or if I don't get it right, I'm fired, or whatever. Yes, but, like, yes. that's, ne- that's never the threat. Toby's never worried about losing his job because of a bad speech or whatever. I think it's mostly just appeals to... Pr- professional pride essentially like if i release a bad speech it will forever be known in the history books as like look at this terrible speech that was given and everyone will remember it because you know they're working on the next inauguration and and actually i kind of like that as an idea because this is the it's quite novel actually now that you mention it i i think they presume that their viewer brings a perspective to it that they are imbuing these characters with that they are like they deeply desire to be good at their job exactly or something all, all like you know that. because you know uh, toby goes on a riff about like the the number of people qualified to work at the white house is like nine mm. in the whole world or whatever so yeah the, it's about that these guys have worked so hard to get to this level and thus are going to, you know, work crazy. Which is funny because Toby's background is losing races over and over and over. <laughs> so it's not like he was the best of the best of the best before the White House. But now, like, the the dignity of the position has made him the best of the best, in a way. It's it's all very bizarre and kind of like, again, it, it deals in, it trucks in these values that don't even, like, that I don't, I can't even really conceive of because 
there, there has to be defined against an opposite for it to be, for it to have, I guess, to have weight, to have gravity exactly. to it. And I yeah. think they're Emma only also comparing themselves was, to to the uppers. They're comparing themselves to like the fear itself speech and say like, oh, we have to be as good as that. But yeah, there's no consequence given to what if we're not. You know, we, we yeah. don't know. We yeah. don't know and we'll never know because the impression is that every speech they give is a, is a humdinger. And like my, my wife said, apparently everybody really loves this scene, but I don't think it's that great. So it's not that like, great. Yeah. I do like, a, like we discussed, the shooting of it, the, the visual yeah. and technical aspects of it. But the scene itself is, you know, pedestrian, yeah. mediocre. Yeah. It, it's serviceable. It gets the job done of, okay, Will's in now. You know, we, we have our, you know, Toby needs help. Will's here to help. Now Will is here. You know, that, and that's the plot. Sam Seaborn can take his wage dispute and fuck off and <laughs> yes. become a yes, right-wing the grifter. Much, the much cheaper Joshua Molina is, yeah. <laughs> is perfectly willing to be a, a Sorkin workhorse. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, wrap this up real quick. Yeah. A few final thoughts and that'll be it. Welcome back. Uh, before we wrap up, the one last uh, bit we want to mention is, so there's a comedy subplot running throughout the episode where Charlie is trying to get the president to dodge a call from the UN Secretary General, <laughs> yeah. because uh, every so often, the the UN diplomats, they just park wherever the fuck they want to park, like in the street on New York, uh, and New York cops get pissed, and they start writing tickets uh, tons and tons of tickets, which none of the diplomats pay because they cite diplomatic immunity. And so every so often the city gets fed up enough that they just start towing all the cars. And today is one of those days. <laughs> and they they want the president to remain in blissful ignorance about it till it gets cleared up one way or the other. So it doesn't become like a White House thing or like, a you know, an item that CJ has to deal with with the press. So Charlie does some uh, clever manipulation to try to be like, oh, no, you can't take that call yet. You have to read a, a memo from Toby first. And he's like, okay, okay, fine. We'll take the call later. But then the second time the call does come through and he's like, I read your stupid memo. It was fine. First off, <laughs> it was full of bullshit. And second off, I'm taking the damn call. And then he finds out it's about the parking ticket issue. And y y let's just put the clip in of Bartlett exploding. <laughs> Now, please, don't leap into it. Don't. There are big signs. You can't park there. They should get towed. I hope they get towed to Queens and the Triborough is closed and there's a big craft show at Shea, a flea market, or a tractor show. Well, that was probably his secretary. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, it's, a, it's a real good payoff. Sadly, this ends up like bookending the the Vicky Hilton issue too and this is how her subplot ends up resolving because we all just distract on the comedy of Bartlett yelling at the uh yelling at the secretary general and instead of uh actually resolving the Vicky Hilton plot 
Yeah, it's um, and <laughs> the General Assembly is actually in session right now in New York City. I know because I used to work with the hotel at the UN. Um, <laughs> diplomats don't fucking park on the street. They have you know garages assigned parking. And, I and assigned parking. <laughs> I kind of figured anyway, but it's a funny enough subplot, and it works well to see the president yelling yelling about into into a phone s- something so trivial. <laughs> yep, it it's great. <laughs> It works great. Um, so that'll pretty much do it for this episode. Uh, it's pretty in terms of like rankings, I would give it like a solid five out of ten. Yeah, like real, just middle of the line. Nothing awful, but nothing particularly great. Really, nothing to write home about. Uh, but we managed to squeeze some conversation out of it regardless. So, as always, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We love uh, support, comments, feedback in any of our threads. If you found the show a different way, hello, welcome. And you can email the show, any of your comments, questions, etc. at theworstwing69 at gmail.com. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and you know what nice. else is nice? Next episode, it's the Christmas episode for this season. That's right. This one was technically the Thanksgiving one. <laughs> uh, as a bunch of characters just say happy Thanksgiving to each other, and that's all we hear of it. So <laughs> next one will be the Christmas one, which that will be something to look forward to. All right. Everybody stay safe. Stay safe out there, and we look forward to seeing you next time on The Worst Week. Bye-bye.